Hello and welcome to the Lancet podcast for the issue of October the 21st to the 27th. I'm Richard Lane. I'm sure all of us, and particularly our children, are familiar with earache. A particularly nasty form of earache is when otitis media develops, that's infection of the middle ear. And it's surprising how guidelines about how to manage this problem are very diverse across different countries. We published a study this week which attempts to clarify how otitis media should be managed. Earlier, I spoke to Dr. Mariska Rovers. She is a clinical epidemiologist at the Julia Center at the University of Utrecht in the Netherlands. Otitis media is a middle ear disease. It occurs when the middle ear behind the eardrum becomes inflated. And actually, it's a disease which is most common in children, and it actually is the most common childhood infection and also the most leading cause that uh, children visit a doctor and also the most frequent reason for children to take antibiotics. So that's why it becomes such an important issue. And what has previous research in this area told us um, about treatment and therefore guideline options for the treatment of otitis media? Up to now, both individual randomized controlled trials and meta-analysis on the data of uh, these published trials have been performed. And the main aim of these former studies was to study the main effect of antibiotics in children with acute otitis media. That is, studies so far studied whether antibiotics were effective for children with middle ear infection or not. The previous randomized controlled trials were, however, too small to perform valid subgroup analysis. And subsequently, the information that was provided in the published papers was not suitable enough to perform a conventional meta-analysis in these subgroups either. So, as a result of inconclusive research, are there different guidelines in different countries or regions? Yes, and in an earlier study from our department in which we compared uh, about 15 guidelines from 15 different countries, we showed that large differences exist regarding the recommendations on treatment of acute otitis media, and, and especially for children aged 6 months to t- 2 years, large differences were found. So, for example, some guidelines like those in Canada, France, Spain and Sweden, and also those from the United Kingdom, uh, they recommend antibiotics for all children under two years of age, whereas others advise antibiotics for children under two years of age if they have a certain uh, acute otitis media diagnosis, that is in the United States, or other countries like Belgium and Norway advise to use antibiotics only when the child is severely affected. And the problem with a lot of two is that severity was either not specified at all in those uh, guidelines, or Criteria were given, such as fever, for example, that were not studied as a specific indicator beforehand. Whereas for the younger children, that is children aged less than six months and those aged two years or older, the guidelines were more or less in agreement. So the main difference exists for children between six months and two years. So quite a lot of confusion around internationally about the treatment of otitis media. Turning now to to the current study, what you've done, um, a meta-analysis, can you just briefly outline the methodology you've used in in the current Lancet study? It's not a conventional meta-analysis, so it's not a meta-analysis on published data. What we did was that we performed the so-called individual patient data meta-analysis, and that is that uh, we combined the raw data of the original trials to one new data file to perform new analysis. And the main advantage of such an approach is that it uh, provides the power to perform subgroup analysis because, of course, you are increasing the overall numbers by combining the individual trials. But also, uh, you increase the number in the extreme groups. So, for example, in an individual trial, often only a few children with otorrhea straining ears are included. 
outer ear draining, that's discharge from the ears, yeah? Yes, discharge from the ear, are included. So if you look in an individual study at subgroups and you w would like to have a look at arteria, you simply don't have the numbers, where if, if you combine the six trials with only small numbers, the power is increasing to perform these more extreme groups as well. So six randomized trials that you've looked at, so that totaled how many children in total across the six trials? Uh, we had uh, an overall number of 1,643 children that could be included in our analysis. And the main findings were? The, the main uh, findings were that we found that antibiotics appear to be only beneficial in those aged less than two years with bilateral acute otitis media and in those with otorrhea, so that's children with discharge from the ears. And for most other children, uh, we think that an observational policy seems justified. Is this because in otitis media in younger children, it's just more likely to be a bacterial infection, but it, whereas with older children, it could be viral, therefore antibiotics of yeah. no use? The, the evidence is not complete about that yet, but there is one other study that indeed studied whether children younger than two years in bilaterality in otorrhea were more often bacteria, and they indeed found that children with bilateral otitis and otorrhea indeed had more bacterial uh, otitis than viral. Do you think we've got enough evidence from this study to, to get some consistency now in, in, in guidelines concerning the treatment of otitis media? Yes, I, I hope and think so, and I really hope that the guidelines in different countries will be changed according to our findings, because that will lead to both a reduction of over- and under-prescription of antibiotics in children with acute otitis media. And finally, just to reassure parents and young children for whom antibiotics are probably not going to be of any use if they're over two years of age, is there anything that you can do to children with otitis media if you're not giving them antibiotics? Yeah, you should give them analgetics, enough analgetics, because children are really suffering from pain and fever. So you have to treat the symptoms anyway. So and we also say we speak about an observational policy. That means that a clinician has to see these children and to recommend to parents on what to do. And that, that's getting rid of the pain and the fever by other options than antibiotics. But you should not do nothing in these children when they are really suffering. Dr. Rovers, many thanks for talking to The Lancet. You're welcome. I'm joined by my colleague, Rona MacDonald, to discuss the lead editorial in this week's issue. Rona, this is picking up a subject that we covered a couple of weeks ago in the journal, and this is about violence against women. That's right. There was two reports published last week by the UN. One was against violence against women and one violence against children. And a couple of weeks ago, The Lancet published a paper by WHO that showed the prevalence of intimate partner violence against women, both sexual and physical, which was up to 50% in some countries throughout the world. And these two reports that are just out, they're specifically looking at violence targeted at women, but we do acknowledge sometimes that violence is targeted at men as well. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, the reports make clear that uh, any form of violence is a human rights violation. And of course, men are the victims of you know, physical, sexual violence, just as women are, and it's a violation of their human rights too. What are the key findings from, or, or conclusions from these two reports that we've got to address? I think just a bit of background to them. These are the most comprehensive reports we have had to date on this subject. They bring together all the research that's available, look at all the legislation, all the gaps, and then come up with some recommendations. And I think it's just so important that we translate the language of recommendations into, you know, a firm action plan that actually has, you know, tangible outcomes and responsibilities because 
These reports are too important to just bury on a website and ignore. So because of the comprehensiveness of both reports, there's actually so much that everyone can do at every level, from the UN downwards to the individual upwards, about how to address these things. For example, one practical thing that we can all get involved with is try to help with the data collection of, of such violence. For example, women should feel empowered to come forward. We should help them to do that. Countries should set in systems to try and collect such violence. The UN could encourage that. So it really could be a collaborative movement. But some of the recommendation in these UN reports, Rona, they're a bit more nebulous, aren't they? They're a bit more wordy and a bit less uh, easy to kind of create action plans for. Yes, that's right. Uh, for example, statements like, you know, all countries should respect and protect and fulfil human rights. I mean, with something like that, it's so big, you think, well, where do we start? But again, I don't think we should be put off and some tangible action from that could be international pressure on countries that haven't yet signed or ratified conventions that protect human rights, such as the Convention of Rights of the Child. I mean, I know that's just a proxy measure because countries that have ratified them still continue to violate human rights, but it would be a good indicator that the world is serious about tackling this issue. So whilst responsibility, as you say, is everywhere, women, men obviously, uh, and women reporting it, uh, agencies, politicians, at country level responsibilities to try and sort this out, but that's all very well, but it does need strong leadership from the top, and presumably that means from the UN itself. Absolutely, and in the conclusion of the leader this week, that's what we say, that bold leadership from the UN is absolutely mandatory in this issue because the UN you know, could do so much and sometimes it chooses not to. And if we want to make progress in tackling violence against women and children, this has to change. Also, Rona, some strong words towards the end of the leader. Complacency equals complicity. What do you mean by that? Well, I think... In many different situations, I mean, violence um, being one of them, when we know that certain things exist, I think that if we choose not to do anything, then that does make us almost accomplices to what's happening, if there is something that we could do to prevent it, whether we're dealing about, you know, global poverty issues or violence. I think that when we're in the context of being a global community, we all have our part to play. And so not doing anything, I think, does make us complicit. Rona MacDonald. And before we finish, it is worth pointing out that this week's issue, October the 21st to the 27th, is where we put into print the study and comment that caused such international heat last week, and we discussed in last week's podcast. That is the study about the death rates in Iraq. Many thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.